Welcome to Living the Bible Together. This is Dr. Troy Shaw, pastor of the Liberty Hill Church, internationally headquartered in Columbus, Ohio, located at 4410 Refugee Road. We worship here online Sundays at 11 a.m. We celebrate communion on the first Sunday of each month. Our Bible study is on Wednesdays at 7 o'clock p.m. For additional information, log on to livingthebibletogether.org. Join us here weekly as we're living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry. Liberty Hill, living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry. Good evening. Welcome back to the study of Ezekiel. We're going to start this evening in chapter 17. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for continuing to carry us through this study. Bless us as we seek an understanding of your work. Awaken us to the truth of Ezekiel's prophecies and their application to our lives. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. All right. The majority of this chapter is the allegory of the two eagles and the vine. And it's used to show the futility of the nation's dependence on foreign powers. The first eagle, Nebuchadnezzar, has gone to Lebanon, which represented Jerusalem. Though he took the highest branch of the cedar, in verse 3, meaning that he took the king and the nobles into captivity in 597 B.C., yet he left the seed of the land, in verse 5, or a remnant. They, in turn, appealed to another great eagle, in verse 7, which was Egypt, and this description refers to Zedekiah's vain attempts to get military assistance from Egypt. This alliance forced Nebuchadnezzar to return later to Jerusalem and destroy it. So let's start at verse 1 and 2. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle, and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. So this parable to the house of Israel is similar to the parables that Jesus told. He would relate a story that contained a deep spiritual message. The world, the world would not understand because parables must be understood by the Spirit. Verse 3, And say, Thus saith the Lord God, A great eagle with great wings, long-winged, full of feathers, which had diverse colors, came unto Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. So the great eagle in this parable is speaking of the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar. The highest branch of the cedar is speaking of the king of Judah. We know that Jehoiachin was captured and taken back to Babylon. The eagle in scripture usually symbolizes God, but in this particular instance, Nebuchadnezzar, because he was the instrument that God used to bring judgment on his people. The many colors show that they were not all under one flag. Many countries were fighting with Babylon. Verses 4 through 6. He cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it into a land of traffic. He set it in a city of merchants. He took also the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. He placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature, whose branches turned toward him, and the roots thereof were under him. So it became a vine and brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. The land of traffic is Babylon. 
the twigs cropped off could have been the princes that he took with Jehoiachin, and the city of merchants is Babylon. Seed were those whom Babylon left in Judah who could prosper as a tributary to the conqueror. A spreading vine refers to Zedekiah, the youngest son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar appointed king in Judah. The benevolent attitude of Nebuchadnezzar helped Zedekiah to prosper, and if he had remained faithful to his pledge to Nebuchadnezzar, Judah would have continued as a tributary kingdom. But instead, he began courting help from Egypt. Verse 7. There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine did bend her roots toward him and shot forth her branches toward him, that he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. This other great eagle here is speaking of the pharaoh of Egypt. We see in this that Zedekiah turned their loyalty toward Egypt. He forgot who had put him in power. He had betrayed Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't want to be ruled by him, and he sought help from Egypt. 18, excuse me, 17, 8 through 10. It was planted in a good soil by great waters that it might bring forth branches and that it might bear fruit, that it might be a godly vine. Say thou, thus saith the Lord God, shall it prosper? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof and cut off the fruit thereof that it wither? It shall wither in all the leaves of her spring, even without great power or many people to pluck it up by the roots thereof. Yea, behold, being planted, shall it prosper? Shall it not other, utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It shall wither in the furrows where it grew. Judah was a fruitful, prosperous land. They could have brought forth many branches. They could have produced greatly had the judgment of God not been upon them. The downfall of Zedekiah and his sons would be soon. God is opposed to his people making a treaty with the world, or Egypt. This kingdom, headed by Zedekiah, had not been very strong. It would be no great task for Nebuchadnezzar to destroy them. Zedekiah is uprooted as king. His sons are killed before him. His eyes are put out, and he's carried into captivity in Babylon. The east wind is a wind of great power, and it usually, it's usually spoken of as an ill wind. When the wind comes, the crops are destroyed. The dependence on Egypt would fail, and Judah would wither as the east wind, or Babylon, blasted her. In verses 11 through 21, the parable is explained in, in more detail. Babylon made Zedekiah a vassal subject to her, took captives, and left Judah weakened. Zedekiah broke the agreement in which he swore by the Lord in 2 Chronicles 36.13 to submit to Babylon, and he sought Egypt's help. Instead, he was taken to Babylon to live out his life. Egypt was to be no help to him or any protector of his army. Moreover, the word of the, uh, this is 11 and 12. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Know ye not what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon is come to Jerusalem, and hath taken the king thereof, and the princes thereof, and led them with him to Babylon. Just as Jesus explained some of the parables that he gave to his disciples, God explains the parable here through Ezekiel to the rebellious house of Israel. We see Nebuchadnezzar, 
king of Babylon, had captured Jehoiachin and the princes with them and taken them captivity. 17, 17, 13, and 14. And hath taken of the king's seed and made a covenant with him, and hath taken an oath of him. He hath also taken the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be base, that it might not lift itself up, but that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. The king's seed is speaking of Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar put his uncle Mataniah in power instead of Jehoiachin. He put him in power and changed his name to Zedekiah. The covenant was between Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar. The king of Babylon had captured the mighty in the land and carried them to Babylon. In verse 14, the king of Babylon captured the strong who might have opposed Zedekiah and took them to Babylon. This kingdom would be subject to Babylon. It would not be an independent country. It would not be allowed to stand as long as it was subject to Babylon. Zedekiah had made an agreement with Nebuchadnezzar to be subject to him. Verse 15, 16, 17, and 18. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt, that they might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that doeth such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? As I live, saith the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwelleth that made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant he brake, even with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him in the war, by casting up mounts and building forts to cut off many persons. Seeing he despised the oath, by breaking the covenant, when, lo, he had given his hand and hath done all these things, he shall not escape. So Zedekiah rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. He breaks the covenant and he seeks help from Egypt. Of course he will not prosper in this. He will not escape. He will lose his sons, his eyesight, and his freedom. Pharaoh had a mighty army, but nothing to compare to Nebuchadnezzar. Pharaoh will not fight Nebuchadnezzar for Zedekiah. God has no respect for those who break the covenant. He will not overlook this sin of Zedekiah. The worst part of all is that Nebuchadnezzar was acting as an agent of God in all of this. Zedekiah then was disobeying God. 19 through 21. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, as I live, surely mine oath that he hath despised and my covenant that he hath broken, even it will I recompense upon his own head. And I will spread my nets upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon, and will plead with him there for his trespass, that he hath trespassed against me. And in all his fugitives, and all his fugitives with all his bands shall fall by the sword, and they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds, and ye shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. God regards this covenant as his covenant. He had, spoke, he had sworn this before God. God greatly punishes Zedekiah for breaking his word. There will be no question left that this judgment of the, of the Lord, that this is a judgment of the Lord upon the people. 22 and 23. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it 
and it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar, and under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. Verses 22 and 23 are a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah from the line of David. He is the highest branch and the true heir of David to the throne. The branch that God plants is of the tribe of Judah. Messiah will be a tender one growing into a majestic cedar. Under his kingdom rule, all nations will be blessed and Israel will be restored. The high mountain is the holy hill of God. He's exalted above all. Verse 24, and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. It is God who brings down the lofty and elevates the lowly. This prophecy, which began by pronouncing the disaster in Judah and the captivity and death of its people, now springs forth with hope for all mankind. Salvation in Jesus Christ is offered to all. In fact, it is offered to whosoever will. Jesus is the tree of life. He is the branch and we're the vine. Our power lies in the strength of Jesus. That concludes verse, excuse me, chapter 17. We are going on now to chapter 18. Verses 1 through 3. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. It seems that some of the younger men here had been complaining that they had not sinned, and yet they were suffering for the sins of their fathers. Though they were themselves wicked and idolatrous, they blamed their forefathers for their state. Their rationalizing is expressed in a proverb that's seen in Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-nine, And that says, in effect, that the fathers had sinned or eaten sour grapes, and the children inherited the bitterness the point of the proverb is that children suffer for the parent's sin. However, this proverb was not true in the case of Israel, and the Lord tells them that they may not use the proverb anymore. Evidently, the people thought they were suffering unjustly. Though there may be an element of truth in the statement that children suffer as a consequence of a parent's sin, it couldn't be applied here. The proverb was being used in, as an excuse. Rather, the Lord says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Ezekiel thus shows in proper balance the tragic consequences of sin and the principle of individual accountability. God rejected their blame shifting and their evasion of responsibility. From now on, each person would be judged separately. Even today, there are generational issues that bring hardship on children. However, each person is still responsible for their own sin and the penalty for sin. God played no favorites, but was fair in holding each individual accountable for his own sin. Thank God for Jesus, who paid our penalty, paid the penalty of death for us. As Christians, the bill of our sin is 
marked paid in full. We all belong to God in the fact that he created us. We are saved or condemned one at a time, not in a group. God may save the multitude, but he saves them one at a time. Verses 5 through 9. But if a man be just, and do that which is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, nor hath come near to a menstruous woman, and hath not opposed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment. He that hath not given forth upon usury, neither hath taken any increase, that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my statutes and kept my commandments to deal truly. He is just, he shall surely live, saith the Lord God. The definition of just or righteous is given in specifics. Such behavior could only characterize a genuine believer who was faithful from the heart. Eating on the mountain is speaking of breaking bread in the presence of a false god. The remnant of Jews that God saved were made up of those who had not bowed their knees to a false god. We see also that there must be great respect shown for the neighbor and his wife. The man spoken of had not committed physical adultery or spiritual adultery and avoided being near a woman during her time. This person is good to his fellow man, knowing that it was as if he had done these things unto the Lord. This man does not take advantage of his brother in trouble. He tells the truth. He's fair in business dealings. Usury refers to unfair interest on loans. He's obedient to God. He's fair with God and man. The righteous die physically for many reasons that don't contradict this principle, but there can be absolutely no exceptions to God's ultimate spiritual reckoning. Verses 10 through 13 deal with a just father and an unjust child. If he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and that doeth the like to any of these things, and that doeth not any of those duties, but hath eaten upon the mountain, and defiled his neighbor's wife, hath oppressed the poor and needy, hath spoiled by violence, hath not restored the pledge, and hath lifted up his eyes to the idols, hath committed abomination." hath given forth upon usury, and hath taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. He hath done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Can such a sinful son claim the merits of his father's righteousness? No. Each person is responsible for his own personal sin. Here we see an evil son who worships false god in the high places, commits adultery with the neighbor's wife, has no regard for the needs of others, and takes advantage of them every, every chance he gets. When those in need come to him to borrow money, he gives them even more trouble by charging them a high interest. He has sinned unto death. His blood is not upon his father, but upon himself. Verses 4 through 18 feature an unjust father and a just son to make the same point. Now, lo, if he beget a son that seeth all his father's sins which he hath done, and considereth, and doeth not such like, that hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, hath not defiled his neighbor's wife, 
neither hath oppressed any, hath not withholden the pledge, neither hath spoiled by violence, but hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment, that hath taken off his hand from the poor, that hath not received usury nor increase, hath executed my judgments, hath walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He surely he shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. So now we see the reverse. The father is the sinful man in this parable. In this case, the son sees the sins of his father and decides not to live like him. He decides to do what is right in the sight of God. This son has not committed spiritual or physical adultery. The father who had committed these sins had been judged of God and found guilty, but not the son. Verses 19 through 21. Yet say ye why? Doth not the son bear the iniquity of the father? When the son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wickedness shall be upon him. But if the wicked will return from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. This shows that the judgment from God is individual. Each person will stand before God to be judged. Each will pay for their own sin, not for someone else's. A person does not pass on righteousness any more than they can pass on their sins. However, someone who has sinned can repent of those sins and be saved. 22 and 23. All his transgressions that he hath committed, he sh they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Sins that are forgiven are not remembered any more by God. This speaks strongly of the righteousness we receive when we receive Jesus as our Savior. We give him our sin and receive his righteousness in exchange. From Genesis to Revelation, God wants us to repent of our sins and be saved. Every time God poured his wrath out on the people, it was to cause them to repent and return to him. God is not willing that even one would be lost. He takes no pleasure in the death of the unrighteous. 24 and 25. But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal, or not your ways unequal? This is not speaking of a person falling and committing one sin. This is a person who began living for God, but whose heart was not truly changed and reverts back to a lifestyle of sin. We find in the following scripture just how bad that is. 2 Peter 2, 21. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it 
to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. We see then it's a serious thing to turn away from God and back into the world. What a terrible thing it is to question whether God is fair or not. God is just in all his dealings with mankind. We all want his mercy, but few of us want his justice. 26 and 27. When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness and committed iniquity, and dieth in them, for his iniquity that he hath done shall he die. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness that he hath committed, and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. In the Old Testament, everyone was under the law. The law was their guide as to how to live and serve God. These Jews were under the covenant made with Abraham, and once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice on their behalf for cleansing. 28 through 30. Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet saith the house of Israel, The way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. True repentance brings forgiveness and life to the sinner. Salvation is a day-to-day -day walk. The guilty conscience of sin has caused people to think God unequal. Just like this, they wanted to go ahead and sin and still be saved. All the chastisement that came upon Israel was for the purpose of causing them to repent. God does not force a person to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved because he loves us. We are his creation. God is love and peace, but he is also judge. God does not cause our ruin. He doesn't cause their ruin. He gives them every chance to repent. Their unrepentant sins are what bring their ruin. 31 through 32. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. The key to life eternal and triumph over death is conversion. This involves repentance from sin, receiving the new heart which God gives with a new spirit wrought by the Holy Spirit. God is trying to say something that will cause them to repent and start all over again with him. God created us for eternal life. We are his creation. We are his children. Ezekiel has preached a message of repentance and salvation, but each person must decide for themselves. We must choose. We can have life or death. Our choice. The death of his saints is precious to God. By contrast, he has no such pleasure when a person dies without repentance. While God is sovereign in salvation, man is responsible for his own sin. Turn and live was a call to repent and avoid death. Ezekiel was a preacher of repentance and of God's offer of mercy to the penitent. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance.
and that ends chapter 18. Going on to chapter 19. In, in chapter 19, we'll see that Jehoahaz reigned only three months when they brought him with chains unto the land of Egypt, where Jehoahaz died in humiliation. Another of her whelps who became a young lion is a reference to Jehoiachin, who reigned between Jehoahaz and Jehoiachin. Like Jehoahaz, Jehoiachin ruled only three months before he was deported, this time to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. The statement that he laid waste their cities refers to the terrifying reign of Jehoiachin. Verse 1. Moreover, take thou up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. Lamentation is a dirge or the beating of one's chest in sorrow. The lament was well known as the, at, at the time as a song on behalf of a deceased person. It was sometimes used in the Old Testament in a sarcastic sense. The imagery in this particular lament is a vivid summary of Israel's history relative to Ezekiel's day, and it's the first of five laments. It is saying, be sorrowful for the princes of Israel. The king was the true downfall of the country. They had really evil men serving as king. As the king goes, so goes the nation. Oh, sound familiar. These kings were idolaters, and they had led their people into idolatry. The second verse. And say, what is thy mother? A lioness? She lay down among lions. She nourished her whelps among young lions. They were so evil, they were thought to be the offspring of a lioness. The lions she lay down among were the heathen kings around her. Israel had taken up the false worship of these heathen kingdoms. God had warned them over and over to stay separate. They were not to intermarry. They did not listen. Their cubs symbolized kings who were descendants of David, exposed to the corrupting influence of heathen kings or young lions. Three through five. And she brought up one of her whelps. It became a young lion, and it learned to catch the prey. It devoured men. The nations also heard of him. He was taken in their pit, and they brought him with chains unto the land of Egypt. Now when she saw that she had waited, and her hope was lost, then she took another of her whelps and made him a young lion. Second Kings 23 provides history relating to the fate of the kings. Jeho Jehoahaz was 20 and 3 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem and was deposed by Egypt's pharaoh. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all his fathers has done. He was not the only one who was evil. Zedekiah was evil also, but he was put into office by Nebuchadnezzar. We read in 2 Kings also that Jehoiachin took the place of Jehoahaz, so this is the second whelp spoken of here. 7 through 9. And he knew their desolate palaces, and he laid waste their cities, and the land was desolate in the fullness thereof by the noise of his roaring. Then the nation set against him on every side from the provinces and spread their net over him. He was taken in their pit. And they put him in ward in chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into holds that his voice could, could that his voice should no more be heard upon the mountains of Israel. Jehoiachin was carried to Babylon in a cage. 
Though he reigned only three months, he was oppressive and unjust. God used the pagan nations of Egypt and Babylon to judge these wicked kings. The Babylonians kept Jehoiachin imprisoned for 37 years. When the Pharaoh made Jehoiakim king, he was very destructive. He stripped the people of what little they had. He had no sympathy for anyone, even the widows. He was selfish and greedy. He was made king over the people to help them, and instead he took everything they had. He began to reign at the age of 18. The holds are speaking of the prisons where they were kept. Verses 10 through 12. The mother is like a vine in thy blood planted by the waters. She was fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. And she had strong rods for the scepters of them that bear rule. And her stature was exalted among the thick branches. And she appeared in her height with the multitude of her branches. But she was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground. And the east wind dried up her fruit. Her strong rods were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. The mother here is speaking of the mother of all Israel. That is possibly speaking more specifically to Judah. They had multiplied in great numbers. They are spoken of as the vine or vineyard with strong power. They were like a vine near the water which grew profusely and produced much fruit. God had blessed them with a land of milk and honey. They prospered and multiplied. Israel in the past had very strong kings such as David. Now the kings had been drastically degraded. Israel, and more specifically Jerusalem, had risen to the very heights and now have fallen. The wonderful heritage they had did not stop God from pouring out his wrath upon them for their worship of false gods. Verse 12 is speaking of the terrible siege on Jerusalem and Judah. The land that had been so great had now fallen. The fury of God's jealousy was what really brought the fall. God used Babylon to bring the fall, but it was God who did it. They were killed with the sword, pestilence, and famine. Those who did not die were taken captive to Babylon. Their fall was great because their sins were great. She no longer had the strong rod. The city was burned. Verses 13 and 14. And now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground. And fire is gone out of a rod of her branches, which hath devoured her fruit, so that she has no strong rod to be a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation and shall be for a lamentation. The banishment is what is spoken of here, driven out. Most were taken captive in a spiritually barren land. The rod is the king or ruler. The blame for the catastrophe that came to Judah is laid on one ruler, King Zedekiah, who was responsible for the burning of Jerusalem because of his treachery. The house of David ended in shame, and for nearly 2,600 years since, Israel has had no king of David's line. This is very much like a funeral service. Jerusalem is gone, their strength is gone, their God has left, they're hungry and thirsty in both the physical and the spiritual. They can no more rule, they are ruled over. This is speaking of the ruin of the nation, the city of God, and the people who had been so proud. And what had been so proud is now gone. And that completes chapter 19. We will end this week's study with 19, and next week we'll pick up in 20. 
I pray that you have a wonderful week. God bless you. This has been another broadcast of Living the Bible Together with Dr. Troy Shaw from the Liberty Hill Church, where we worship virtually on Sundays at 11 a.m. For more information or to contribute to this ministry, please visit us online at livingthebibletogether.org. God bless you and have a great week. Liberty Hill, living the Bible together through education, missions, and ministry.